there was a point in my fourth year as a new investigator where I had no R01, I had no big grants, I was running out of money, and I'd taken a chance on a on, an, on some science that was high risk, and I had no idea where it was going to go. And if either of those didn't work out, I could be totally, you know, screwed and not get tenure and had to sort of even start contemplating what my backup career would be. You know, so at some point I was like, yeah, maybe I'll just be a, a national park ranger and, and do photography. <laughs> um, it did work out, but there was, there was a, a really low point. And so you just never know. I think that, so I just wanted to say that because I feel like if you just look at someone's CV, you could be like, wow, that, you know, they've always been successful and it's been such an easy road for them. But everyone goes through hardships and in their careers. You want to find a supportive environment that can allow you to feel like a failure, but still <laughs> come out of it. This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards. As you might know, this podcast is meant to be a resource to help early stage scientists navigate science careers whether that's in academia or beyond. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at underscore once a scientist. Last thing, the podcast is really only useful if it gets into the hands of the people who need it. So please consider sharing it with a friend or colleague, and thanks for listening. All right, I've got... Jason Shepard on the line. Jason is the John M. Huntsman Endowed Chair in Neurobiology and Anatomy at the University of Utah. He did his um, undergraduate work at the University of Otago and then went on to a PhD at Johns Hopkins University in the Neuroscience Department and did a postdoc at the Pickauer Institute at MIT. Uh, Jason, really great to have you on. I'm excited to talk to you today. Hi, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So you live in like one of my top favorite places in, in, in the world. Like Salt Lake City is it's like it's just incredible. I, I love the outdoors and there's so much to do in, in Salt Lake and around Salt Lake. You can get to like seven ski resorts in like 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's um, it's amazing. And before I moved, yeah, I had, I had um, been to a, a meeting at Snowbird and, uh, you know, fell out of the mountains but had never actually been to the desert. And for me, I think even more beautiful than these mountains are the, the parks in Utah. And that's really, I think I've fallen in love with the desert. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, you can do like canyoneering, you can do rock climbing. Like if anybody knows what, doesn't know what canyoneering is, it's like these, they have these slot canyons that have these walls that are hundreds of feet high and they're just, um, there are these like little tiny ravines that are carved out in the middle of the desert just by you know water and, and wind and um they're they're like almost too narrow to get through in some cases and it's it's just incredible do you do you get out uh fairly often and, and do those kinds of things yeah i mean i would say um you know the access to the outdoors and, and getting into the desert has sort of been a, a sanity check for me especially in you know pre-tenure um done a bit of canyoneering. I wouldn't say I, I'm an expert, but I usually just go with friends that have all equipment. Um, but there's some unique places in Utah and I actually picked up landscape photography be because of it. Sort of so inspiring. That's cool. So you've been there for uh, not that long and I'm su it's surprising. It's 
pretty cool. You got an endowed chair position um, as an associate professor. What's how did that come about? I'm just just out of curiosity. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it was pretty amazing. Um, I, I think we're, I was telling you earlier, the um, the way it happened was I, was I went up for tenure and um, I was waiting for the letter from the president to say, yes, you have tenure. And then I get this other letter in the mail um, saying I got this endowed chair and I was like, you know, someone must have made a mistake. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it was a real nice recognition of the lab's work, and um, you know, usually endowed chairs are given to to people that are quite uh, far along in their career, and and I think in some some ways uh, it's it's actually better to give it to you know earlier mid career uh, stage scientists because they can use that 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 extra money. Um, the nice thing about it's unrestricted money. So yeah, it's certainly stoked about that. Yeah, that's awesome. So you have had some pretty cool discoveries in the lab that have allowed you to like give a, a TED talk or TED Med talk, right? Um, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, uh, it, you know, the TED format's interesting. I, I actually had been uh, involved in curating and, and um helping organize the TEDx events in Salt Lake City. And it was basically um, the speaker, the speaker coach for, for those um, events. And, um, you know, so I knew what the format entailed, uh, but for academics, it's sort of interesting because, you know, most of the time we give talks, they, they're not scripted and we use slides as crutches. Um, whereas the TED format, it's short, not, not a lot of slides. And, um, and you have to memorize a script, basically. So the memorization part was the, <laughs> the hard part. Um, huh. And uh, I mean, the scripting was fine. It was fun. But yeah, then you sort of get up there and, and sort of this high pressure environment and the recording. And you've got mem- to memorize or, you know, give a 15 minute talk. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was pretty nerve wracking, but it was a great experience. It seems like it would be kind of stressful. <laughs> um, so, but you also actually do a podcast, which um, I I knew about your work, and um, you know I I had, I'd read about your your articles, and and I've always been interested in ARC and in the um, you know coding of of memory and these immediate early genes, and so I was familiar with you from from that angle. But then I also got on a call, or I also got on. Um, a discussion with Vincent Racaniello, who you work with on This Week in Neuroscience, a, a podcast. How, how did that come about, and and what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, um, so maybe I should step back and say, you know, my lab's um, interested in, in how memory works at the molecular level, mm-hmm. and um, we we've been studying this one gene. Well, I've really been studying this one gene most of my career called ARC, A-R-C, um, which we think is really key for, for memory consolidation. So if you take it out of mice, they um, they just don't remember anything. Um, they can learn okay, but it's that sort of long-term mm-hmm. memory that um, is wiped out. So we've been trying to figure out how that gene works. And when I started my lab, you know, one of the first things I wanted to do was to figure out what the protein itself um, looked like, what kind of properties did it have? And um, we actually started a collaboration with Adam Frost's group when he was at Utah 
uh, who he was an expert on um, using cryo EM and, and various EM electron microscopy methods to study proteins. Yeah, so this is a long story, but but basically, oh, I, I, I want to hear, this is what I want to hear. Yeah, yeah. Basically, we um, so we started purifying, wanted to purify arc protein um, to study it, and one of the you know standard ways to do that is you grow up your protein in bacteria, and then you purify it out of the the bacteria, and because the bacteria can make a ton of the protein. So we did that, and it looked great. Um, we were able to get good expression of the protein. Um, and then one of the steps that you use to clean up your protein before you can use it is to run it through a, a column, um, that sorts things by size and we know what the size of this protein should be. And so we, you know, we just, we knew that we could collect the, the fraction that, that contained it. And then that's when we started getting some weird results where, um, the, protein seemed to be so big that it wasn't even getting into the column. It wasn't getting through the column at all. Hmm. And that was a puzzle. And so we just, we thought that maybe it was just clumping together, forming these, you know, um, large aggregates or something. But um, since Adam's lab was good, you know, good at EM, my technician said, why don't we just look at it anyway, look at the protein that we're getting from bacteria uh, and that's what he did. And the first images we got from that experiment were just wild. So we were looking at these electron microscopy images and we were seeing these soccer ball like structures. And um, these were large, like a hundred nanometers or much, much larger than, than, a, than a single protein should be. Hmm. And um, so that was, and, so that was one of those moments where you're like, what are, you know, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Um, this is probably thought really, it was a mistake. Yeah. This is really exciting or it could be an artifact of the preparation or some sort of, we did something wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it turns out that those sockable structures actually look like viral capsids. So viruses, almost all viruses make this protein shell um, that protects their, uh, genetic information. And that protein shell has a very, uh, sym symmetrical shape. You probably, lots of people probably have seen these soccer ball like capsid structures now, mm -hmm. um, that viruses. They look, like, they, look, they look like almost like, uh, spaceships, like landing. <laughs> well, those, right? the, those ones are probably the bacteriophages cause they've got those legs, <laughs> But this this capsid in particular, this structure looks like um, the the HIV capsid, so the retrovirus family of viruses. Um, and so that observation, of course, so when we were studying this brain gene, and so why the hell would a brain gene or brain protein make something that looks like a virus? Um, and so that observation, you know, has led us down a rabbit hole, uh, really very interesting rabbit hole, at least. Um, that connects uh, cognition and memory to viruses. And it turns out that this ARC gene, the origins of it um, are fascinating. It comes from, a, we think, a ancient uh, viral-like element called a retrotransposon that is kind of like a, a virus. It can jump into uh, cells 
the the DNA of cells and alter the structure of the DNA, well, alter the sequence of the DNA. Um, but usually those retrotransposons uh, do not get passed on the their sequences do not get passed on to our ancestors because they they only affect the the cells in the body and not the sperm or eggs. But sometimes um, they can get into the sperm and egg or egg and then get passed on. And if that that happens, then that sequence actually gets incorporated into our genomes. And the fascinating thing there is that our genomes, human genomes, actually contain a large majority uh, of the sequences look like these viral-like elements. Um, So in fact, our genomes only have only 2% of the DNA actually encode genes and the rest um, we're still trying to figure out, but about 20 to 30% of the sequences uh, in the human genome genome look like virus sequences or these transposable elements. No way. Um, but in this is case, that, is, what, is, is that like recent? I mean, like, did we, is that a recently discovered factor? Is, is this been known within the virology field for a long time? Yeah, it's, it's, I would say the last over the last 10 years, um, we've sort of fig- figured out more and more about what those sequences uh, look like and where they are, originate from. Um, and so I think there's still a lot, a lot of work to figure out, but it's clear that our genomes are, are littered with these remnants of either ancient viral infections, especially the retroviruses, or these transposable elements that um, that contain they, they actually usually repeat themselves a lot, um, hmm. and so you know we sort of thought oh well those sequences are either bad for you or they they're not really useful in any way, um, but it turns out it looks like evolution can use these sequences to make new genes, and so ARC is one of those where some sort of viral-like element was inserted into an ancestor about 400 million years ago. And then uh, that sequence became, you know, mutated and altered by evolution to the point where it actually became an actual gene that functions in all land animals that we can tell. Um, And it's become very important and conserved. Is it, is it actually still, is it still trafficking, um, genetic information to like, is it trafficking genetic information to synapses? Yeah. So, um, you know, you, like most science, um, scientific discoveries, we have more questions and answers now, yeah. but <laughs> that observation led us to so, sort of look at whether, um, arc was acting like a virus in some way, uh, at, at, at neurons. And it is a case mm-hmm. with that we can see, uh, arc, leaving the cell so it can exit the cell and transfer RNA from one cell to another cell. And so the RNA uh, is similar to DNA where it contains information that codes for proteins or it contains uh, or it can regulate the expression of proteins in many ways. Um, That's incredible. So we, so we think then that, yeah, this that arc is forming this capsid-like structure, and then and encloses RNA inside the uh, capsid uh, that gets out of the cell, and then it transfer that transfers that RNA to other cells. 
Um, and so that's what we know. But we, what we don't know is whether that's actually required for memory consolidation. So we're um, testing that idea now. And we're also wow. kind of trying to figure out what is it transporting from cell to cell? What kind of RNAs? Uh, what is that signal actually important for? What, how does it alter the, uh, the actual function of the cells that, that take up the signal? It's 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 funny because like it's it's like a really surprising result in a way, but also when when you really think about it, it's kind of like that kind of makes sense, you know. Like if if that is the case where it's actually delivering, you know, transcripts that are essential for learning and memory, it kind of makes sense that 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 could be a reason why it's so essential uh, is is that it's allowing for uh, like site specific expression of different proteins, right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of memory, I think what's fascinating here is that. Um, you know, the models that we have currently for memory all revolve around how synapses change and connections between cells can be altered. Um, and for and one of the reasons why we were interested in ARC in the first place was that we knew that ARC uh, actually has this unique, one of these unique properties that the um, expression is is um, dictated by experience. So normally a brain doesn't have a lot of ARC. And then when you learn something new, uh, the transcription of ARC, the DNA converts to RNA and then RNA to protein. But yeah, the RNA actually traffics out into the, near the synapse where it can get locally translated. The ARC, tra- the ARC RNA. The ARC RNA, yeah. So that's basically mm-hmm. a way of getting really rapid protein expression at synapses. Um, and so all of that makes sense in terms of the canonical models where you want to alter synaptic strength and connectivity when you encode a memory. Um, but we don't have a clue of why you would want to, um, transport RNA or a message from one cell to another cell in the context of memory and a model of memory that, that has, um, this built into it so if it ha- if it is true that this is the main function of what arc is doing in cells it opens up a whole new avenue of thinking about how information is um in- in- encoded and stored in the brain so let me make sure I, I have this right um so the idea is that i mean arc is an activity dependent um gene and and so uh when there's a lot of neuronal activity um then the mRNA of ARC gets transported out to individual synapses, and this kind of maybe that, that idea of synaptic tagging. And then eventually, um, they, it'll get expressed, and it and it there that's where it creates these capsid-like uh, particles. And the idea is that it could be going like transsynaptically to impact other other cells potentially to who knows maybe, maybe um, increase expression of of specific learning and memory related genes within the postsynaptic cell. Potentially, yeah, exactly. So that that that's the model that we're testing. Um, we do know that you know what we actually were looking at and still are looking at um, is that is that the role of ARC protein at synapses. One of the the um, things it does is it alters the glutamate receptors at synapses to change the strength of those synapses, hmm. um, and so it traffics those receptors in and out of the synapse. And so that's for a long, and we still think that's a critical component of what ARC does. Um, 
and we're, we're, we're studying this, but we also think that the capsid does form in the, in the dendrite near the synapses, the active synapses, and is conveying another message transsynaptically or, or, as you say, even to other cell types potentially. And it's doing something at the same time that um, could be involved in, in consolidation of memory which we know takes uh, minutes to hours after the learning event. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's where we're really trying to figure out, is this uh, cell-to-cell signal critical for memory consolidation as well as this trafficking of receptors at synapses? That's incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a, to me, it's a very... It's a very fundamental question, you know, in, in, in neuroscience because it's not just learning in memory. It's like it's probably it's any type of of uh, associative process potentially, right? You, it could be addiction. It could be anything else. And and so I think that to me, what the you're you're testing it in a model that you have you know experience with, but it could potentially. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see where the data goes, right? But yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of like really cool um, possibilities and applications of, of something like that, you know, of a, a model like that. No, for sure. And I think, you know, we're the cool thing here is that either way is going to be interesting. If it, if this yeah. cell to cell signal is not involved in memory, um, it could be involved in something else. We, we have some evidence that maybe this could even be a long range signal that, that uh, arc is getting out of the, the brain um, and into the peripheral nervous system wow um so yeah so lots to do and uh, you know i think it's been it's funny because when i um when i was going on the job market for my faculty position i had a lot of people tell me that i shouldn't be studying just one protein that it wouldn't lead to a career (laughs) um (laughs) and uh you know in some ways of course the this is partly true and I had ideas of how to branch out from from ARC and and um, I still had some plans for that but uh, I guess I got lucky in choosing the protein that I wanted to study because every time I think that we you know it solved it or it's getting boring it throws up a new surprise and this one is certainly one of the biggest (laughs) biggest surprises I can imagine yeah absolutely so all right we got so we went into the story, but you were talking about um, you were originally talking about how you got involved with this week in neuroscience. So, like, how oh, yeah. did those two connect? <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was um, uh, I'd known um, Vincent's podcast because a colleague of mine here at Utah, Niles Eldy, um, does it does the this week in evolution um with with vincent so vincent has a string of different podcasts um he's a monster maybe we'll just name him real quick they're they're like this week in virology this week in microbiology this week in evolution this week in neuroscience and and what uh, parasitism this week in parasitism i think and maybe one other that i'm missing here but um he's he's got this huge body of work that's like thousands of episodes but uh, um and and just a really great speaker. So like for anybody listening, go in and check out these podcasts. Like even if you're a neuroscientist, check out the virology ones because there's just a lot of cool stuff. It's it's fun to learn about these different fields. So Yeah, exactly. Right. And so um, the, this week in neuroscience is probably the newest one. We've only done six episodes now. And that started with a student, an MD, PhD student 
Ori Lieberman uh, at Columbia. And I guess he approached Benson and said, hey, you know, I think there would be really great to have a neuroscience specific podcast. And I guess Benson was like, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and I guess uh, some of us got roped into it. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's that been like? Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's nice to, you know, I, it's funny, podcasts, I think, are becoming more and more um, accessible to the public. And for me, this is, I, I think it's really important for scientists to reach out to the public. But the audience for these are, diver- you know, are, are quite diverse, everything from actual scientists to um, non-experts. But because Vincent is not a neuroscientist, it actually, I think, is good because he can say, hey, wait a second, I don't understand what you guys are saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and explain. So he's a good foil for for um, for it. But, I, you know, I think it's just, it's new. We're sort of still trying to figure out what it, what it, um, what we're going to cover and how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing the same thing here. So <laughs> you started out, though, um, South Africa and New Zealand, right? Right. Yeah, it's a it's a jumble of all of that. So I um yeah, so I grew up in South Africa, was born there. My parents they grew up in South Africa. They their their parents um also grew up in South Africa. So for us to move, um, it was a big deal. And uh obviously as a as a kid, uh some of that you don't really understand, but others other parts you do. Um how, so, how old were you? So I was fourteen when we moved, um, and that was, uh, in 1994, just, um, just as the first, uh, democratic elections were happening. And so the lead up to those elections were quite dramatic in, you know, both in terms of what, where the the country was leading and what was going to happen. For example, my, my mom is a high school English teacher and she, she was actually involved in one of the first high schools in the country um, to integrate black uh, students. Um, wow. And so I, I sort of had firsthand knowledge of how, how the, the whole sort of integration process was going to work, at least in the education system. Um, and it was, of course, as a kid, you don't really, I was young enough to not really know why um, this was happening, but, but the obvious change was that my class now had black kids in them. And of course I was used to just having white kids. And so this, this was obviously, um, something new that, that led to some interesting conversations with my, my folks. I would imagine that you maybe had known people that were on both sides of, of, um, kind of this pro segregation versus integration issues. Oh yeah, no, for sure. And, um, you know, it was only just before we left that I sort of understood what was really going on. There was um, demonstrations, you know, where where uh, lots of groups were marching down the street with with guns and shooting off guns, and and of course, as a kid, again, that's scary, and it's not and it's not clear what why it's happening, and um, and of course, it had to happen. That was why why there was a change in the guard, but but it wasn't clear if, if the country was going to go to civil war because of it and um wow i mean so that was you know i think particularly scary of course for for my parents and then i also remember there was i, I was actually a very good 
um, I was a very good singer before my voice broke. I thought I was actually a soprano. I, <laughs> so was I actually. I was like really into choir when I was younger, <laughs> and my voice changed, and I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I was really good, and, and actually, um, I, I sang with a children's choir that was uh, conducted by a very well-known conductor, and he he would often reach out to um, black choirs and and so that we could sing with them. And, and so that was almost like my first experience of black people, you know, and cause, so that was, that was a really cool experience of being able to, you know, feel like I was getting to know their culture through their singing. Uh, cause we would sing traditional s- songs with them. So, yeah, so those are sort of the formative experiences <laughs> when I was growing up. Yeah. Like when you realized that there really isn't that much difference between people and their motivations. And right. I mean, there, there, I mean, like there, there really is no difference in terms no, of like a no difference. And yeah, it was, I, I mean, I remember, remember it being actually a really happy and exciting thing to, to experience. Cause I, cause again, my parents sort of try to um, instill in us that everyone's equal and including race and, but, but, you know, but we didn't get to interact with a lot of, um, black uh, kids where I never got to interact with black, black kids my own age uh, because we're so segregated. Um, and so, so that was really, I don't know. I found, I, I thought that was a really um, happy event in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, have you read uh, Trevor Noah's book, uh, his autobiography? I can't remember what's it called. No, I, I need to do that. I need to read that. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. He, he talks about his um, personal experiences. I mean, he has a, he has just a really, interesting life story in general and yeah. um, he, he tells it really well so uh, i think it yeah you like it and i'd recommend it to anybody that's listening in as well yeah um, you know it came to a head when actually my school had a hostage scare where one of the sort of fringe um black political groups decided that they were going to take the school hostage and oh, wow. um and so we had to bunker down in the school overnight so that's a that's a memory that's that stays in my my mind quite clearly um and and so it was just wasn't clear to my parents you know how safe and um where what the future of the country was going to be and so they decided that they would immigrate which which i think you know was was a, at the time a very brave move on their part uh my dad went to new zealand about a month before us to um, to look for a job. He didn't even have a job. And my mom had to then pack up her whole life with two kids. I was 14. My brother was 10. Um, so, you know, it was, it was tough times. None of us really wanted to move, but it was, it was just not clear what was going to go on. What what kind of um, effect did that have on you, that experience? I mean, I imagine you've thought about it a lot since. It was great to have the experience of, of integration and to to be able to, you know, see how systemic race racism affects people in a way that I think few can really experience where, you know, I I was in an, in a segregated country and many white South Africans were not racist they 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 did not want apartheid uh and it was just through 
the fact that the minority racist uh, government has sort of imposed all of these um, uh, laws. But when you grow up in this in a, in a system, it's of course also hard to know why it's wrong. And I think when when I, I was able to experience both the right and the wrong aspects of of systemic racism being transitioned to um, you know something that that is that is equal for everyone. Yeah, it's particularly timely. It's a particularly important issue right now here in in the U.S. and you know it's across the globe really because we have clearly not solved these problems. <laughs> and when I, when I was a high school student in South Florida, I went to a school that was I think it was it was something like thirty percent black, uh, uh, probably. 40% white and maybe 30% like Cuban as, as well as a lot, a lot of different cultures. And so it's pretty multicultural. But one of the things that I learned when, when I took the bus to school was that there was very clear differences um, because they had a busing system where um, they were integrating schools in, in Florida. And um, if you think about and, and, and you kind of segment the, the U.S. even still today, there's very stark lines. Um, in terms of where people live in some cases still. And it's obviously not always the case. There's there's much more integration and, and less segregation. But uh, from neighborhood to neighborhood, even still within the U.S., we still have those issues. And and the same thing, I think, is, is true, um, you know, within academia, there are still big systemic issues uh, regarding race. Would you agree? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I think the good thing about Black Lives Matters for in, in the academic context is that all of us um, have really, you know, thought a lot about what what those issues are now and how to address them. And, um, you know, it's been gratifying to see a lot of grassroots uh, initiatives like the Black and Neuroscience and the, the Black and various other fields in academia where we're starting to highlight underrepresented um, groups and their lack of representation in academia. And that's clearly still an issue and it's a systemic issue um, that that trickles down at, at all stages of one's career. And I have to obviously acknowledge and, and really use the fact that my own privilege is apparent because I'm a white male and, you know, a lot of the uh, successes I've had in my career have come not just from hard work and luck, but also because I didn't have these barriers um, yeah. in, in, in my way that, that of course, uh, many face. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that, acknowledge that and, um, and it's, it's sort of really nice to see that diversity is now certainly in front and center in many departments and institutions in terms of how they're thinking about their, um, their, their, their own faculty, students, trainees, etc. Yeah, definitely. And, and I was thinking about, I am also like very much privileged and I've had a lot of um, people that have, that have helped me out. And of course I worked hard, everybody, you know, that, that, does something worthwhile works hard, um, but some people have to work particularly hard because because there are things that that stand in the way and and like and I grew up in like a socioeconomically disadvantaged position like um, 
we were my family was very poor growing up but but still like once i get in, got into college and once i you know started going through the path um, there are privileges that, that I don't even know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even aware of in a lot of cases. And, and so I think it's really important that, that, like you said, universities, you know, um, people are really starting to take this seriously. There's this grassroots movement on, on, on Twitter and other elsewhere as well. Um, do you see conversations changing within the university? Oh yeah. And, you know, I think, um, there's a, the, the, the good thing for, from my perspective is that, it's not just conversations, but now there's actually uh, action plans being put into place, hiring changes put into place, um, diversity committees being put into place. Um, so I, th- I think that this is really a groundswell that will lead to uh, to actual change as opposed to every so often this topic comes up and people talk about it and then it dies down again. And, you know, you see a lot of sort of discussion that leads nowhere. And so I, I'm actually seeing a lot of change. And I think that's really exciting. And, and, and um, you know, I look forward to seeing what happens from there. From my own experiences, you know, I've always, I've always counted diversity as, as important. And, and that's something that I, I put into my, you know, into my ethos for how the lab works. And, have always tried to uh, create an environment where everyone's welcome, uh, including making the making it clear that the, that it's a team environment and and that sort of thing. But I but I've struggled to balance all of what you know what I could do in my position, and I think that's you know each each individual has to decide what what's important to them. But I certainly think that for me, you know, the diversity uh, of thought and and diversity of, of, of experiences, all of that is, in, is included in, in, in also trying to increase diversity in underrepresented groups. It's also important to recognize that like, it's a work in progress. You know, I, I, for myself, I am still for sure trying to learn about, you know, what the problems are and like how I contribute to them because it, it's, these are such big problems and, and so multifaceted that it's hard to get your head around them. Um, but, you know, I think it's really important that, that we just continue to have open dialogue, you know, with, with everyone. I, I think that one of the challenges as I think about it is like a lot of the burden has been put on the disadvantaged to advocate for themselves. And really it's, it should be our responsibility, you know, as, uh, as people that do have privileges to, really learn about them and to, um, help to facilitate those changes. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I totally agree. And, um, and I'm, I'm also still learning. And in fact, you know, you know, I, I sort of felt somewhat of, a I felt very, felt, felt what was happening in this country, very upsetting because it, it really made me feel like I was back in South Africa in the nineties Obviously, in South Africa, it was, it was codified. It was law. It was law. It was in your face. You know, all of all the sort of segregation was clear. And in America, in modern America, you you just expected that not that all of that was you know not there, and that there was no racism, or, or at least that was my naive assumption when I moved to the states. And it was soon apparent that that was not the case, um, and that that. Um, a lot of this, the, the 
systemic issues in this country are insidious and um, hard to combat when they're not even acknowledged. And I think the first sort of step to really addressing them is acknowledging them. Acknowledging them, and that I think that is the the really bright part of the the Black Lives Matters um, movement. And and so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think for me as well. Then having to go go delve into why these issues have not been addressed in this in America and and sort of learning the the history behind um you know everything going from back to slavery to incarceration all that anyway that's that's something that i've learned i feel like over the last six months and that's definitely been uh eye-opening yeah similar issues and in, in conversations happen around um you know gender diversity and helping women to to succeed in science because that, that that's been a challenge and there, there i think there have been a lot of you know again great people that are really pushing on these issues and I, I'm really encouraged by the fact that the academia um, and I think it's happening in, in industry too um, I, I've seen it for sure within the company that I work at where people are are proactively going after these topics um, yeah I, I, you know going to the exactly sort of talking about the gender um, the, the gender issues that's only something that I've been more familiar with and um, I was lucky enough to grow up with a, a very strong, you know, female um, in, in my mom who who always instilled this idea of it, that women can do just just anything that men can do, and so you know, for me, it was actually a surprise when people thought otherwise. Um, <laughs> I've always also been aware of of, of that in, in academia. It was kind of interesting because my grad graduate program at Hopkins actually had. Um, I think we had about 23 students and we only had three men in that class. Wow. Um, That's awesome. so, <laughs> uh, but you sort of see how many of our class ended up in academic positions or stayed in academia. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of attrition and for various reasons. And I think there's still a lot to, to do in, in, um, you know, at the faculty level where where we are supportive of, of our female colleagues, that institutions can do for hiring, not just hiring, but also supporting them when, when you know, if they want to have a family, that should be something that should not be a punishment for them. And, you know, so there's, I think there's definitely been um, a lot more action in that regard, but institutions can do better. It, it's such an important issue and it's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, cause, because that that's around the time of life, you know, and uh, for many people where they want to start having a family is like, you know, the postdoc years or maybe PhD years, postdoc years, and definitely going into like an assistant pr- professor type of position. Yeah. I think it just goes back to, you know, there are barriers that some people will face that others won't. And, and that is, and that's, um, and that it's systemic if you're um, male versus female, underrepresented versus white, and um, and we have to see those barriers and have to try and work around them because it it, it can lead and does lead to a lack of diversity, especially as as people progress through their career. Um, and so, you know, I think again, I think it's gratifying to see that these issues are now being clearly highlighted and are taken seriously 
Um, and I think, you know, there will be movement on them. And, um, and so hopefully, as you say, people who are in a privileged position, like, like we are, can help, um, immensely with, with, with this problem by not ignoring it and, and trying in our own, um, capacity to, uh, address them. Yeah, absolutely. You grew up, obviously you were in South Africa. Um, you were in New Zealand. It is a much more egalitarian democratic society. Uh, I went to a school, high school there where in fact, um, I would say a quarter of the students came from immigrant populations, including Asia, you know, Japan, China, and South Africa. And so it was great to go from, from this sort of very closed, segregated world to a completely open world where equality was, you know, revered. And it was clear that diversity and equality played a, you know, really important role in, in education. Um, and so I went to high school in New Zealand in Auckland and then uh, undergrad at Otago University, which is in the South Island. Uh, and uh, did a, actually started doing medical school or pre-med as they have in New Zealand. There's two medical schools and you basically have to go into that program straight after high school. Uh, huh. But I had one elective my first year or first semester and, and I chose neuropsychology elective. And when, when I started doing that course, I got hooked on the brain. And so decided to switch into a, a neuroscience made undergrad major and haven't looked back. <laughs> what, what was it about that class? Like, was there a specific idea or concept or, or was it just like you'd always been thinking about it? Well, I was always fascinated by how the body worked. And in fact, I really only wanted to do medicine because of that. I didn't really want to see patients. So probably a good idea that I didn't uh, <laughs> go down that road. Um, and out of everything that you could study, you know, the, what's more fascinating than the brain. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and I think like a lot of uh, neuroscientists, it was a fascination with behavior, with human behavior. How do you get, um, you know, this complex cognition out of a, a, a piece of wit uh, brain. And um, uh, at the time, one of, I was also reading, you know, Oliver Sacks and his book, um, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And so it was just this book, yeah. combination of, of um, you know, doing this course, thinking about how the brain works and, and getting hooked on really trying to figure out how all of that um uh, really work, operates. When you took that class, was that the moment where you're like, I'm going to become a scientist? <laughs> or or yeah. like, did, did you know like that that was a career? What were you thinking? Like, how, how um, were you thinking about that? No, I, I knew that uh, I, I knew that I was, it was always going to come down to be, whether I was going to be a scientist, professional scientist or a doctor or both. Uh, I was kind of lucky in that when I was growing up, my, my parents, um, humid all my questions my mom said I was born a scientist because as soon as I could talk I would ask a thousand questions <laughs> um so I you know I think uh, the the natural progression from that was to become a scientist and uh one of the actual formal experiences that I had was uh my senior year of high school I was 
chosen to represent New Zealand at this international science forum in Australia. And basically it was uh, a forum where they would bring in uh, kids that were, you know, really interested in science to the, the uh, ANU, Australian National University of Canberra. And that, 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 that exposure to actual research labs um, at this, it was basically like the space camp equivalent. <laughs> Hmm. Um, really, uh, you know, got me thinking about it and exposed to uh, a, a career in science and um, and meeting people actually for the first time that didn't look at you so strangely when you would ask all these crazy questions. <laughs> so you found you kind of like found that you, you you found your people in a way. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Um, it. There is a there is a culture to science and and it's so interesting to me because it's very very different from like the way that people interact outside of science and, and I think that sometimes scientists don't realize that because you go for years in in training and most of the people that you interact with on a daily basis can tend to be scientists right um, and so I don't know sometimes when you step outside and 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 you look up and you're like oh this is a little bit different of a way of thinking. <laughs> what, what, what do you think? Like, what do you think like characterizes like somebody that thinks scientifically? And I'm not, I'm, I'm not like, you know, I don't want to get like stereotype or anything necessarily, but like, I think that there are key features of, of the ways that scientists think. You know, I think you're right. I, I, and, I, and we see it sort of really quite obvious right now where science has become, you know, the spotlight on science and mm -hmm. scientists um, and it's only true that scientists can get lost in their own world. <laughs> um, yeah. but I think the common theme for most scientists is that you're just very curious, right? You want, you want to, you want to tackle a question, a problem and to the, you know, to, to, and to focus solely on that one question or questions is something that's really single-mindedness is, is not common. I think outside of science will is something that, that you need to have. Um, and just a fascination with how things work uh, or applying uh, a problem uh, or, uh, or figuring out something that would end up solving a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is like a fringe opinion and, and uh, you know, people might not like me for saying this, but I don't necessarily think that scientists are like intrinsically smarter than the rest of the population. Um, I mean, I think that you have to have like, yeah, you have to be able to retain information to a certain degree and be able to kind of pit or, or fit like a puzzle together. But I think that that really is, like you said, kind of the defining feature is that that curiosity and, and the and the desire to learn more about something because the, the knowledge and, and the problem solving process, I think those things are, are almost like the fruits of the curiosity. Like the more you, the more you go in and, and like think about things and, and ask questions, the more you learn about something and then, then the more knowledge you have and then the more questions you have. And it's like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that, um, but one thing that that I think is really important right now to that I'm trying to figure out how to convey to the public is that um, it 
that being a scientist is not just about asking questions. Anyone can ask a question and anyone can give an mm-hmm. answer, right? And mm-hmm. um, we humans have been seeking answers to these questions about how the world works for forever. Um, but what science is, is a structure, is a, is a process in itself. And um, that structure and process is independent of the question. And so what, yeah. what it does, it allows us to impose that structure on, um, uh, on the question. And that, that process uh, is, is, is very well um, regimented now. And so um, because science itself and doing science is a process, um, it, it gives a, a sort of a standardization to, to everyone who, who's doing that science who can then agree or disagree or, you know, uh, use that structure uh, to answer their questions. And that just comes down to, uh, in a very simple way, of course, that you pose your question and and then you hypothesize how that that um, something about that question, and then you try and disprove that. And um, so it, it has to be a testable idea. It has to be a, something that you can observe empirically. Uh, and so all of that comes together in the process of science. And it's not magic. And so you know scientists can be wrong, and it takes time. <laughs> and we're seeing it yeah. now with fusion with some this new virus that that's um infecting people and as we as scientists study it and come up with data we revise how we think about it Hmm. it's a i'm just thinking about the the societal implications of all this because it's it's uh, you, you make a really good point it's it's not just about asking questions because like you can ask a question you can find evidence for any answer that you want to want to have out there right and and you can fit the evidence to to whatever kind of like preconceived notion that that you have but that's not what science is science is like rigorously it's, it's it maybe you pick a, a pet hypothesis but you're trying to tear that thing down you're not trying to like build it up and 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 show that you have some great thing you're really trying to pick it apart so that you so that like you can find something that's better right exactly i mean and basically each time that you refine your hypothesis you get closer and closer to what is actually happening and of course uh science works right i mean we're we're talking on a computer um modern society (laughs) is totally founded on science because it works and um and that's and it's the best way to explain the world that we know of so far and um and and but it's a process and you know we're not always right (laughs) yeah and if you're viewing it from the outside and and thinking well, there's all these scientists and they, and, and maybe you don't understand or, or haven't really utilized that process to like uh, falsify things and, and to um, try and kind of tear down a hypothesis like you do in science. Then, then you think like the world is made up of facts and these facts are changing all the time. And, and so how can I trust anything? Because, uh, because I'm being told one thing one week and then six weeks later, there's something else. Well, that it's, uh we're you have to put you have to put your hypotheses out there 
in order for other people to test them. That's part of the process of science is that you you put it into the public sphere so that we can all go in and and figure out, hey, is this is this the right way we should be going, or is there like is there a more correct path? And so I don't know. There's a big disconnect, right, between um, a lot of people because we've got a lot of cons- like you know. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know if we need to go into like conspiracy theories, but like there's there's a lot of different ways that people view gaining knowledge about the world, and I think that science is just to me the the best method that we have to solve problems and to and to understand how things work. And and so I think that yeah. we really need we need people that will get out there and actually talk about these things to educate the public and like how scientists think because because people don't understand that. And so they, they make assumptions and they think that like we we're making stuff up or, or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Or even worse, they think that we're in cahoots with, with, um, uh, that's what it is. Yeah. Billionaires or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. we're somehow, you know, bi- biased already or have been bought out. Yeah, no, I, I think we're, we're living in interesting, interesting times. I think that, um, technology and science has created a world that we take for granted the science and technology that we have. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially in the medical realm where there's, there's been this war on, on information for a while that's, you know, culminated in the, in the anti-vaccine movement. Um, and part of it's that is, is that we have access to all the information uh, that humankind has, and that has not been the case for um, most of you know modern times. And so the access is great; everyone can use Google, look up information. But not everyone is trained to, uh, or even uh, basically trained to evaluate information and figure out what is legitimate and what's not. And mm-hmm. um, we're seeing this now, where this war on information is actually taking a political uh, road. You know, politicians are using this and um, it's, it's actually, you know, it's not, it's, it's dangerous because now you're talking about uh, information that can cause uh, death where if you give out the wrong information or encourage people to do the wrong thing, you're, you're, you're actually uh, causing harm to people. So I think, you're right. Scientists now more than ever need to stand up and say, well, this is how we get our information. This is how you can rely on this information and why you need to um, listen to experts about uh, this because um, it is a process. And I understand that, you know, I understand the confusion. I can understand why people are looking at scientists going, well, you told us to wear masks now, but Months ago, you just told us not to wear masks, stuff like that. Where, <laughs> yeah, um, and that's the point. I mean, with science, it, it's it's uh, it improves on itself, and you don't get the the best answer right off the bat unless you're very lucky. Uh, but it's a self-correcting process, and ultimately, uh, it does work. And and you're seeing it in real time now with the COVID epidemic. Um, to me, as a scientist, though. You know, I've never seen so much focus and so much science being done on one topic, and the pace is just amazing. And you know, I think we're 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 going to have treatments, we're going to have a vaccine in record time because of it. 
I just want the public to know that, you know, 99.9% of the scientists that I know are doing science either because of their own curiosity or because they generally want to help the world. And, um, there's, you know, we, we, I wish I wish I was being bought out by some billionaire and having, <laughs> me. you know, I was a struggling grad student and postdoc. I was, you know, thirty in my thirties before I actually got a decent salary. So this is not the road to take if you want to make money. And you, you know, people do it because they love it, and it's and it's uh, and I, I count myself as one of those people who are lucky enough to have a profession that I'm passionate about that I don't even feel like is work in in a way. Um, so we do it for the love of it, but we're not, certainly not doing it, you know, for the, for some sort of weird, uh, idea that we're going to get a billionaire to, to fund our, um, you know, our lives. <laughs> I, yeah. I worked at the national institutes of health, um, you know, for my PhD and just like seeing it from the inside and, and like some of these conspiracy theories about, uh, I don't know whether it's vaccine, like anti, anti-vaxxers or, or uh, GMOs or, or anything. It's like you see the inner works and workings and you're like, there is zero possibility that like we have things together enough to be able to coordinate these crazy conspiracies, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, these, these, you know, these, these theories are so elaborate that I, you, you know, you're just like, well, how did anyone even come up with them? <laughs> it's just, um, I wish, I wish there was, you know, a hundred collaboration between 140 countries on, uh, on one issue. Cause that's what's happening right now. Every single country has been affected by this, uh, virus and there's no, no one is, no one is in control of it. Well, I guess maybe New Zealand at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. Like the the way I think about it is, um, you know, when we talk about bringing that knowledge to the world of how science works and the way that, um, because I, I think, I think it's a huge societal problem. And like, in, when I work in the business world, we like, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, like stupid business terminology that, that, probably not many people care about you turn problems into opportunities so people talk about opportunities in business and not problems <laughs> but um, the, the the problem and the opportunity is essentially that um, we've got uh, we, we've got society split along these dimensions of how to, how to think and um, and it's in some cases it's a it's a pursuit for knowledge and in other cases it's a pursuit for power and I think that the if, if we can educate the public not just educate but like help people to understand this way of thinking and incorporate it into their everyday lives that actually is where you can really make a difference in the world and so one of the ways i think that is this can be done is people talk about graduate education graduate training and and you know how phds that the job market is is challenging um to get a job as a tenure track professor what if we utilize you know this really great training system and to to both advance the the progress of science and bring people into this process but also train them in ways that will be beneficial to society and enable them to go and succeed in whatever field like they may they may be interested in later uh and it doesn't have to be science you know we can we can have scientists in in any different field so i'd be curious i mean i'm like super leading 
the the question here, but I'm, I'd be curious to see what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I I mean I totally agree. I think there's um, you know in, in academia we've had this issue for many years now that we're producing more PhDs than um, there are tenure track positions or academic faculty positions, and that has meant that um, a large majority of, of PhD students have had to figure out what else uh, could they you know, do it with their PhD or what career paths do they want to follow. And the thing about the PhD process is that it, it, it does, it does teach you how to think that way in, in a scientific way. And those analytical skills, uh, those problem solving skills can be used on anything and anything. Uh, to great effect. Um, so I agree with, uh, you know, so I agree. And, and, and I think that this is, that the graduate programs these days are, are also thinking about what kind of other skills uh, can be included in those training programs. Um, but I think actually what come, what it comes down to is, as you say, education. And, um, you know, one of the cool experiences I had uh, growing up was that, uh, well, one, my mom's a high school teacher. So I was always, in, you know, intimately uh, involved with education, but, when I was a student, I, I finished high school in New Zealand, but didn't w- want to go straight to college. So I did an exchange year uh, in Switzerland. So I lived in Switzerland for a year, um, but I actually still went to school in Switzerland, even though it didn't really count for anything. And one of the things I noticed in Switzerland is that um, at that high school level, sort of the, the senior high school level, almost every single teacher had a PhD. Every science teacher had a PhD. Hmm. And you know, the one reason for that was because teachers there actually get paid a lot of money. <laughs> and you think about it, it's like one of the most important professions in the world is teachers and they get, you know, zero pay. So, yeah. it's, so I think it starts with this idea that education is, you know, super important. We should reward that. And Hey, if you have a PhD, that means that you've immersed yourself in a topic, and um, why don't we give you more money for that? <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> it actually was acceptable, or even um, a choice, that PhDs in Switzerland would end up going to teach science, and that's where it starts. So, like you know, the 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 the, the people that had these PhDs are perfectly suited to teaching how science works. And I think that's where if we, if, if we, we could really convey how science works, it's not about the facts. It's not about, um, you know, memorizing all the knowledge of a topic. It's, it's really being able to structure your thinking so that you could then apply it to any problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I, th- I think that, um, it, I, the education system, I mean, I, I want to give all the credit to, you know, educators in, in whether it's K through 12 or, or college, because like I'm the recipient of that. And, and I think, and probably any of this, anybody on this podcast is, um, it, it, I think it is a challenge though in the sciences where, you know, sometimes the people that are teaching the sciences don't have a lot of experience in actually doing sciences. And, yeah, and so, exactly. uh, and, and, and so they, so it's hard to translate, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and that, and the outcome of that is then the science 
is taught in a very boring way as in these are the facts this is what we know and it's never and and students are never told how we got that information how did we get from not knowing that the sun uh you know is a star or uh the earth revolves around the sun how did we get to that point of knowing it um there's a you know a couple of hundred years of history of science there but the process is is still the same and so um if science was taught more as how did we get to that knowledge versus this is the knowledge i think that would be a real key change yeah we'll see i mean uh if you run for office i'll vote for you I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually has something else we, we need more scientists in uh in politics that's for sure <laughs> oh yeah my goodness yeah uh there's i've talked to a few people that that do like science policy on, on the podcast and and it's really it's cool stuff i mean like that and that and i think that's that that was kind of the point that we we're talking about before which is you know bring scientists into um in, into all different fields because like the way of thinking is like like you said it's beneficial it doesn't matter what field it is and, and like just the ability to break down a problem and and hypothesize something and then and then really kind of methodically try and tease that apart um yeah so so tell me a little bit about like uh you went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. Like how, how did that, how did that come about? And like, what, what did like the process look like for you? Did you feel like it was like seamless or was um, the process of going from undergraduate to this work in Switzerland to your PhD postdoc to professor? What did that look like for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, so I, did, I, was, I was doing my undergrad in, in New Zealand and it's a, th- it's a three year program um for a bachelor's and then if you want to do a, a bit of research you can add an extra year it's called an honors degree and then in that fourth year you're you're basically uh working in a lab and you do a little thesis and so i decided to do that uh, to get my my feet wet in research although i'd also done some summer programs in labs so i had some experience but that fourth year of course, most people will just stay at their university to do it. And But what I did was seek out international experience. And the way I did that was that we actually had an exchange agreement with the University of California system. So I could go to any of the UC campuses and do research and then, and then get credit for it back home. Um, and cool. uh, so it's a pretty cool program. And, and you know, I, I think my advice to any students listening is that you you should always try and figure out all the opportunities that you can seek out opportunities. You know, take your own career in your in, own, in your own hands and not wait for uh, information to come to you. You seek it out, and because I I remember getting exposed to that exchange program partly because I had done an exchange uh, as a high school student, and so I was like, oh, I wonder if there is something similar um, in college. Hmm. And, um, and so I, I, I sorted it out and, and, uh, the funny thing was I had written this essay about, um, synaptic plasticity in my third <laughs> year. And so I, I got really interested in that topic. And then I basically decided that I wanted to work on arc, this gene <laughs> back in undergrad and one of the world's experts, um, that had been working on it was Os- Oswald Stewart, who, who had just moved to UC Irvine. Um, 
so basically, I, I decided to do my this fourth year exchange uh, as an exchange student at UC Irvine in California, and uh, essentially did their first year PhD program where I was sitting the, sitting in and on coursework and then and then working in a lab. You know, that was the experience that that got me into the American system. But I actually had a Commonwealth scholarship to to do my PhD in Cambridge in England, um, and the way that the British system works is is similar to New Zealand, where if you do a PhD, you have to choose a, a, a PI right off the bat. There's no rotations, and you have to set that up. So I'd actually done that, and uh, was actually going to potentially work with Barry Everett um, at Cambridge, but I never actually met him or never you know traveled to to Cambridge. And so I applied to grad school in the states only for only to sort of get get a, a couple of options. I didn't really know how it worked in in the states. Um, other than I knew that I could only get interviews if I was in in the states already. No one was going to pay for me to you know fly from New Zealand. Um, hmm. In fact, I didn't think that I didn't realize that you um, you that. that if you got selected to interview for grad school for PhD programs in the States that they would pay for your travel. Um, <laughs> and so I only, that's why I only applied to a few places, but and then I, and also I had no idea how competitive it would be, whatever. And um, I, uh, but as that, that Irvine experience was great because basically they, no, no one really knew w- what to do with me. And so I could just <laughs> do my own thing. And I ended up working in, in Frank LaFerla's lab long for, for, for many reasons and getting a, a second author neuron paper out of that. Um, and now it's like wow. a second author neuron of, paper like before you even started your PhD. It's, yeah. And that paper was on this new Alzheimer's model, this triple transgenic model. I think it's got like 3,000 citations right now. Some of got crazy. Wow. Like that. But anyway, that was, I mean, it was a great experience. But, um, and, and so when I applied for grad school in the States, I was like, okay, well, what are the best and I'm, and my interest became more and more molecular and um uh and again because i was interested in plasticity and arc paul Woolley's lab at hopkins was one of my t- top choices in terms of con you know focus mm-hmm. um and but i applied to stanford brown um upenn so i think only like five or six places at, and um but they ended up getting into most of them which was also not something I expected. And so I ended up having great options to choose from. And, uh, and I chose Hopkins, which, uh, was, was an amazing experience. You know, Hopkins is just amazing place to do science. Um, yeah, I've talked to a lot of Hopkins scientists and uh, unanimously people have been happy with that program. Yeah. I would say, I would say though, you know, moving from New Zealand to Orange County, USA was a huge culture shock. And then <laughs> moving from Orange County to Baltimore was another huge culture oh, shock. Sure. Um, and the first year, of, I remember the first year of PhD was also the first the year that um, uh, the U.S. went into Iraq and and uh, there was a war and and I just remember like just thinking like why why am I in Baltimore in America right now um, and. Uh, having this really huge culture shock, but you know, Hopkins itself was just an amazing place. And so totally was worth it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so you went and did your, your postdoc. You, you worked with Paul Worley and uh, Rick Huguenier. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. At, at, at Hopkins. And, and actually the program that I was in was called Salem Elective Medicine, um, which was kind of this big umbrella program. Um, and, uh, you know, it, yeah, I, I can't say enough about Hopkins. I think it was just a great place to do science. Did, like by that time, were you kind of locked in? Were you like, I'm I I'm gonna be a professor or PI kind of like you're gonna go all, all after it. Yeah, I, I I think even at that point, I think I I never really even when I was in Irvine, I think that was my goal, and I and I I actually never thought about anything other anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was saying, I mean, there's something to, there's something to be said for that though, right? Like uh, to like really really focus on something and. Yeah, and I think, and I think also maybe what helped me a little bit was that I was naive about the process in a way where I didn't, I wasn't getting people telling me, oh, you know, this is too hard, or um, you know, that sort of thing, where I felt constrained, or I, I just did it, and and of course I've got survivor bias, but um, uh, I think at the time I wasn't. I didn't feel like this was a, a hard road to travel. It was just the, it, it, it was the road that I had to travel. Um, yeah. and, but of course there's challenges at each stage and moving from Hopkins to MIT, there was a big culture difference in the way those institutions were environments worked. And, you know, I'm not going to get too negative, but I would say I wasn't, super uh, happy with the environment at MIT and, and but of course you know there's always reasons for or um, ways of, of dealing with with different differences in environments but I think it is an important um, aspect of what you do yeah yeah absolutely it it really is and and you know you say it's survivor bias and and somebody might be listening and saying well like oh times were different back then um, and th- that may- that's that's certainly true right now, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't mean that I still think that if that's what you want to do and you see this kind of being your your inevitable path, uh, you go you you go down something until you figure out like hey maybe this door is closing down the road and and then you divert right um, I don't know yeah. I mean like there, there's there's different ways to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think there's always going to be some luck to um, life and, and, and your decisions that you make. Uh, but I'm a big believer of that you put you try and put yourself in as many circumstances that you can get luck. Um, and, you know, part of that is, you know, like I did my PhD overseas. Um, I sought out this exchange agreement and I was the first person to do that um at UC Irvine and you know no one really knew <laughs> I was navigating uncharted waters there and so you know I kind of made my own path in some way um and whether it was through just you know being naive or just being super you know motivated to do it I don't know but but I think then you know you can create your own path in in some ways um even if it's not what everyone else does yeah, definitely. And there's the, um, I mean, there, there, there's, there, I think there is a case to be said for sure. Like we, we also tend to, um, 
phrase things from like a, an alternative careers perspective and in, in, in academia. And I've seen people kind of talking about this and, and I think it's a very valid point, which is like, it doesn't mean that like academia has to be the goal for everyone. And, and maybe some people actually, I mean, this was not the case for me. Like when I went in, I wanted to become a professor and, and I, and I ended up leaving, not because like that door was closing necessarily, but because I, I found that I, my, my interest shifted at some point and, and I, so I went after that thing. So, um, I, but I think that, um, it doesn't have to be like, uh, academia. It doesn't have to be becoming a professor. That same approach I think is worthwhile, regardless of what you go after is like, be really invested in something and, and like make your own luck. So start getting involved early on if, if something else seems interesting to you or like, you know, try it volunteer for a couple of things and see what does interest you if if uh if maybe academics is not the thing for you but all of them have value and all of them are are interesting in different ways it's just a matter of like finding what what the fit is and then having the experience that you can speak to that will actually lead to your ability to do that thing yeah no i mean i agree and i I think that and it's it's sort of interesting as you become a, a pi where you you have PhD students in your lab and, and you have to manage them. And, you know, you, you sort of come to the realization that, that of course, everyone is um, approaching their PhD or comes out of their PhD with different motivations or, or outcomes. And it's, it is very true that not everyone who completes a PhD even wants to be an academic scientist or stay in academia for various reasons. And that is fine. That's totally fine. You know, there's no, there's, there's so many people that end up uh, doing many jobs over their life. There's no reason why that's a bad thing. And uh, I think that academics should not look down on those who, who decide that they don't want to be a professor or, um, you know, the, the, the few that do want to be a professor that, and that they strike out for whatever reason. And I think that, I think for me, that's the worst part is that if someone really wants to be a professor and run a research lab, and the system just breaks them down or they, they just don't end up getting to that point for, for whatever reason. And that's, that's super tough. Um, but yeah. I see many, many students or many PhD, you know, postdocs or people that end up making the, the decision for their own um, career that they don't want to pursue that avenue and, and, um, and then end up doing you know, other, other things that are just as fulfilling for them. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a lot of times it's, it's within the psychology of the person that's going through that thing at the time. And, and um, I remember being very, very nervous to um, talk to people about like this other interest that I had started developing. And um, I think that that's, that's probably the case with a lot of people because they think you build up this model in your head of like everyone's expecting you to do this specific thing. And, um, and they're going to be upset with you, especially if they're like an advisor who's invested time into you that, that you're going to pursue something else. And I don't, that has not been the case for me. Like everybody that I've talked to has been supportive if, you know, but I had to kind of go out on the limb and be, and be like, Hey, like this, this is an important thing to me. Like my, my priorities maybe have shifted or like, here's what I want to pursue. And, and, um, sometimes I think that people just kind of live with these expectations that like weigh them down 
in some ways uh, and and people and their PIs or or the people in the lab will be more supportive than than they actually think that they will it's just that they they can't see that because their preconceived notion is that everyone's expecting them to do a specific thing yeah no i i agree i mean I, well, I th- well first i think it's good that you've had that experience because I, I do know that there are still some pis out there that that um you know yeah. do feel like if their trainees are not becoming academic scientists that they've failed um yeah. so i think it's becoming rarer i mean and and part of it's just reality that that um you not not everyone can be an academic professor. It's 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 a different um, uh, time, um, but I think having these discussions in the open are, are helpful. I think you know one of the things about social media, or Twitter, that I found interesting is that it sort of bears open the playing field for um, students and, and postdocs because they get to see the deliberations that sometimes happen behind closed doors. Um, and, Hmm. and I think from my perspective, you know, I am supportive of everyone in my lab, no matter what their career choices are afterwards, and I'll do everything I can to support whatever that career is going to be. But I want to make sure that they have a skill set that they, they do come out of their training in my lab with a skill set that's going to be, um, suited or helpful for, you know, not just academic careers, but other careers, but still, I'm not trained as a banker or, or um, whatever <laughs> or a business. And so I'm, I don't pretend that I'm going to be able to do that. But there are some fundamental skills as we sort of talked about just before that I think can be applied to almost any profession, you know, being able to give a good oral presentation, being able to write very clearly, concisely, um, analyzing information and being able to sort of problem solve all of those our general skills that we heavily use in science, but also, of course, in almost any other uh, career p- pathway. And so, um, you know, I think it's fine for for me to think that my students are gonna, not going to be in academic science. Um, but you want them to have the rigorous training because because yeah. like that's what science is. Sci- science is a very rigorous process of like learning how to think and learning how to ask questions. And and if and if you skip out on that, you then you don't get the benefits for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, exactly. We're not giving out PhDs. You know, it's not like we. You still have to earn it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I do think that that of course now nowadays you would have to have your uh, head in the sand to not be aware that on that not every PhD is going to be a, a faculty or a academic scientist, and so you know students know this when they come into their their program. And, and I think some most programs have evolved some, in some way to sort of support the diversity of careers. Um, but it, is, it still is an interesting, you know, dilemma in that we're making more PhDs and fundamentally PhD is still delving into a, a specific problem in science. I mean, if we're talking about science PhDs mm-hmm. and, um, you know, is it worth people spending five or six years delving into that one problem if they end up never actually following up and working in, in, uh, in that area of science. Um, and I think that's what, where, for me. yeah. And that's where I think, you know, students just have to, um, you know, even during, during their PhD evaluate whether this is the road they want to take and knowing that it may not end up, um, taking them to 
uh, an academic position. Yeah, yeah, I agree. These are big, <laughs> big questions, and <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think we need to get to all the solutions here, but I, I think that it's helpful for people to to realize and and to hear from PIs, you know, who are who are supportive and, and to and to see both sides. You you go into graduate school as a PhD to do science, right? And and to and to further um, knowledge in, in in a given area. If if you want to do something else, you know, afterward, and and like if you have some outside interests or or you see it going a different way, that's awesome. But like, still do the science, you know. Like you're you're there to progress knowledge, and and the more you can get engrossed in that, and the more you can really understand the process and, and internalize it, it's going to be helpful for all those other things. But don't skip out on, you know, being rigorous and and you know working hard and uh, trying to solve big problems, right? Right. I you know I agree. I think you know the key key here is no one is forcing anyone to do a PhD, right? It's not like you know you have many choices after uh, after undergrad. You know, do your homework. Figure out like, well, uh, do I like research? Do some. Uh, you know, be a technician or spend um, summers in a research lab. And because um, it is a long road, if it's not something you really want want to be doing. It's hard to finish. And it's hard to, it's hard to finish. And, and again, that's sort of, and that is, again, I also an expectation where I do see a lot of students, um, you know, coming, becoming increasingly, uh, under pressure and, and having issues with their mental health because they they sort of are trying to you know finish something that they're they're not really into anymore and uh, and I think that's where I think PIs and PhD programs could probably do better for sure is, is just trying to figure out how do we how do we get people through a PhD and, and how do we create avenues where if if the PhD is not what's what's right for them what's the what's the best option and i don't think there's you know really a lot of um clarity there no i i agree and and you know maybe there's some element of like reducing stigma of you know people feel like they're they're a failure if they leave the program or or there's this big societal pressure and no exactly i think that 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 kind of uh stigma i think happens at every stage of your career. It's the same even with, um, I've seen it for, for, you know, assistant professors who end up not getting tenure or they decide that running a research lab is not what they want to do um, for various reasons. And that also is fine. You know, it's like, it's hard. It's a hard job. And um, and again, if it's if you end up figuring out that this is not what you are good at or not what you enjoy, there shouldn't be uh, this expectation that you should still continue doing it. But there's an immense pressure. I feel like, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's hardship involved where if you decide that you do want to quit, quit your, your academic position. Um, Partly also because it was so hard to get in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's an interesting uh, question. I mean, I haven't had that experience myself, so I so I can't really dig into the psychology there. But <laughs> well, I, I, um, you know, even though um, right now I'm, I feel like I'm sitting pretty 
nicely in my career. Um, there was a point in my fourth year as a new investigator where I had no R01, I had no big grants, I was running out of money, and I'd taken a chance on a on, on some science that was high risk, and I had no idea where it was going to go. And if it didn't work out, if either of those didn't work out, I could be totally, you know, screwed and not get tenure and had to sort of even start contemplating what my backup career would be. You know, so at some point I was like, yeah, maybe I'll just be a, a national park ranger and, and do photography. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it paid off. I mean, those some of those decisions that I made early were um, – that paid off, you know, getting this, making this discovery, getting a cell paper, uh, and then the, and then the funding, um, it did work out, but there was, there was a, a really low point where, I, you, you know, I was considering alternative careers or whatever. Um, and so you just never know. I think, I think that, that, so I just wanted to say that because I feel like if you just look at someone's CV, you could be like, wow, that, you know, they've always yeah. been successful and it's been such an easy road for them. Um, but everyone goes through hardships and in their careers, you want to find a supportive environment that can allow you to feel like a failure, but still <laughs> come out of it. And, um, I think I'm lucky here at university of Utah, in my department where I just had an amazing chair who's so supportive of everyone. And, and we've had, um, it's a very young department. We've got, I think something like 10 new hires over the last eight years, um, and, you know, people look out for each other, um, senior faculty want you to succeed. Everyone helped me with my grants and we had various avenues to bounce ideas of each other and all of that helps. Having a supportive environment, no matter what you do is always great. So that's helped in my success for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, think, thanks for sharing that, like the, that personal experience, because I think that, you know, people don't realize that it happens for everybody. Even if you, even if you have nothing to do with the academic system, you're always trying to figure out like what your career is going to look like and, and um, what the next steps are. And, and there's always risk involved at any stage. And, and these things are, are, are scary. Um, and, and sometimes you just have to kind of make a decision and go, go out on a limb and things will work out regardless. And, and I, and that's something I, I think is, is really important for people to hear is, like even if it's not the thing that you wanted, you're gonna you're you're a smart person. Like you've gone through this process of of being able to solve problems, and and you know maybe that's just the next problem you need to solve, and and uh, you can turn turn it into something else that's that's interesting. And so I think it makes a big difference for people to hear someone that has been is very successful um, to share some of those those personal I don't know fears as they went along, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and I'm totally open about that. And I think, you know, I remember going to my chair's uh, office almost like in tears saying, I I don't think I could do this job. <laughs> and, and you know, and then hearing back from my chair going, well, what are you talking about? You're, you've got everything, you know, lined up. You're, it's going to work out. Don't worry. You're doing the right things. And sometimes you just need to hear that from someone to keep your confidence going. And, um, you know, because if, if my chair had said to me, yeah, you're right you suck. <laughs> um, maybe I would have, I would have just said, well, that's it. I, this is too hard or I don't know, whatever. And so, you know, so you never know, but I will, I will say that, yeah, I've definitely had my own uh, tough times in my career, but 
happy that right now that's it's worked out yeah absolutely well thanks so much for for getting on and and um for sharing your your story and and you know it's been a lot of fun so i really appreciate your time jason yeah no worries thanks nick all right take care cheers This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards, the host and producer. Caroline Sparazza and Sam Asinoff co-produce the show. They also write show notes for each episode with a profile for each guest and some of their favorite books. Check it out on our website at www.onceascientist.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at underscore onceascientist and on Facebook at onceascientist. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. And thanks for listening.